25 years ago, in the Central African nation of Rwanda, a horrible tragedy occurred. The world watched as over 1 million people of the Tutsi tribe were targeted in genocidal massacres that were led by people from the Hutu tribe. In 100 days, a million people were killed. You may remember the movie Hotel Rwanda, in which American actor Don Cheadle portrays the true story of the hero, Paul Rusesa Bagina. As the manager of a hotel in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, Rusesa Bagina saved thousands of people by hiding them in the hotel and buying time from bloodthirsty mobs wanting to kill them. Rightfully so, Paul was recognized the world over as a hero for his actions. Yet, in an unthinkable twist of events, Paul Rusesa Bagina is today sitting in a maximum security prison in Rwanda, alone and tortured by the man who, after the genocide, became Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame. But as I have come to know, hope always gives birth to seeds that sprout an even stronger fight than expected. Paul Rusesa Bagina's daughter, Karin Kanimba, along with her family, have mounted a most incredible campaign for their father's freedom. Though their campaign has put them in danger, they are rallying the world to not only join their calls for Paul Rusesa Bagina's release, but also for each one of us to release ourselves from the fear of standing up for what is right, even if it means we do it alone. Welcome to the Frontlines of Freedom podcast, where today we are talking to a very special individual, and her story is going to surprise you. If you know anything about Rwanda, for most people in the world, you would know about Hotel Rwanda, the movie, or you would know what led to the creation of that movie, which is the genocide that happened in that country. Today, we're speaking to somebody who has a very special story about Rwanda, not just about Rwanda, but about herself as a person, about her family, and most importantly, about the very person that that movie Hotel Rwanda focuses on, Paul Rusesa Bagina. We talked to his daughter today, Karin Kanimba, who has become an advocate, a voice, a fighter for his freedom and his release. Paul Rusesa Bagina was abducted, essentially, by Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda, and has spent more than two years, I believe, now in prison, in solitary confinement, being tortured, and also being accused of crimes that he did not commit. Karina, I want to thank you so much for being here with us today and just taking the time to tell your story, uh, the story of your father, and I guess the story of freedom and justice and the fight for freedom and justice. I want to ask you to just tell us about yourself. Who is Karin Kanimba? And, and just where was she born? And, and how does she find herself in the middle of the fight for freedom for not just one man, but essentially the rights of many? But walk us through that. Well, thank you, Evan, for welcoming me on the podcast. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my father's story and to continue to bring light on his case and his current, the current injustice he's facing in Rwanda. 
as uh, you must know, um, it is so important um, for political prisoners to be spoken about. And being able to talk about him is what is keeping him alive today. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. So my name is Karine Kanemba, and I was born in Rwanda in 1993. In 1993, 1994, when the genocide began, I was with my biological parents um, who were unfortunately both killed um, during the genocide because they were Tutsi and member, members of the minority group that was being targeted during the genocide. So I became an orphan um, at the age of one and I was thankfully adopted at the end of the genocide. Paul Rusesabagina rescued me and my sister from a refugee camp. Uh, when he learned that we were still alive, he found out where we were exactly and um, learned that uh, we were weak and, uh, and hungry. And so he first sent some milk for us to keep us, to, to feed us, and then eventually uh, made, uh, found a way to, to come to us and rescue us from the camp. At that moment, mm -hmm. he adopted us. And since then, he has raised us as his own daughters, along wow. with the rest of our family, um, our new siblings who have been our big brothers and sisters since. I, I, I mean, this story, your story baffles me in so, so many ways. Tell me about the, the genocide, what you remember of it, what happened, particularly with yourself and your sister, how your parents' lives were eventually taken. Because I know that you were just a baby when that happened. How old were you? And, and tell us exactly what happened to your parents. What was happening in Rwanda at this time? In 1994, I, uh, when the genocide broke out, I was 11 months old. So I was a baby and my sister was two years old. We were in our home in Kigali, and um, my biological parents were very close friends of, of my adoptive parents. And so they had actually, the night before the genocide broke out, had shared a meal together because my biological parents, uh, my biological mother, had just gotten a new job. And, um, and so they were celebrating with uh, my adoptive father, Paul Rusesabagina. Um, they parted ways. We went back to our home, and Paul Rusesabagina went back to his and um, at one point when the, the genocide began, um, it, it began because the, the president, the former president's plane was shut down from the sky. It is essentially the event that, that led to the beginning of um, the, the massacre of, of many, many people across the country. So because of the, the fears, the dangers, my father, my biological father, Thomas Kenimba, learned of, um, of a plan to go to safety. Um, we were at our home and people were calling out everyone, all the Tutsis, to come out into the street, into the road, uh, telling us that they would be taking us to a safe place. When they gathered us in the middle of the road, um, my father was there, my mother and another aunt. Uh, my mother was carrying me, my aunt was carrying my sister, and my father was leading the way. They gathered us in the middle of the road but then we learned that it was a trap. They began shooting oh at God. everyone in the crowd. Uh, many people ran in different directions. We fell to the ground. And unfortunately, at that moment, my father, Thomas Kenimba, was hit and, um, and he died. And so we ran back into the home with my biological mother and, and my aunt and my sister. Um, that's, of course, them carrying us as we were babies. Mm -hmm. 
and then later on, my aunt as well had to 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 flee as well because she also was um was afraid for her life. And um, the same day, um, they came back to the house. Um, the 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 killers came back to the house and took my mom away. So my sister and I were left alone in the home in the house until um, a man came and took us and to a refugee camp um, where we were able to to remain safe. Oh my gosh, I. I am listening to you and I'm trying to think that you were only, you were only 11 months old at that time. Your, your father has been shot in the streets where he and yourselves have been lured to, under the pretext that it's safety, you are hiding in a house, your mother is then taken and you're left alone. You were, how old was your sister at the time? She was two years old. And I actually turned one during the genocide. So you are then taken, you're at a refugee camp and your uncle, Paul Rosesabagina, is looking for you and finally finds out you are at this refugee camp. Um, your sister is, is turning three, you are one. What's, do you remember what was happening at this refugee camp? I know one of the things you talk about is that you are hungry. Yeah, so I uh, fortunately don't remember um, those early days as I was a baby. Um, but what I've learned through my family and my parents is that we were, um, we had not been, I mean, we were hungry. It was a period of war, as you can imagine. Um, food is scarce, um, safety is scarce, water is scarce. Everything is, is um, it's difficult to, to maintain um, a normal life. And so we, by the time my father located where we were, um, he learned that we were very, very skinny um, and, um, and needed to be fed. And so that is why he, he decided to first um, send some milk for us. At one point, I think he wanted to for us to be taken to where he was, but then uh, and he and my adopted mother. However, they also thought that this would be too dangerous um, for, and that something might happen to us on the way. So instead, they just sent food, uh, milk, and, and uh, until they could make it to where we were um, and to, res- to rescue us. So Paul Rosessa Bagina, he finds you, but he's been having an experience as well uh, through the genocide. And of course, many people around the world have watched the movie Hotel Rwanda, where Don Cheadle, the actor, acted as your father. Tell us a little bit about this story behind Hotel Rwanda. What did Paul Cesar Bagina do during the, the, the genocide that led to this Hotel Rwanda, but more than that, that led to literally the whole country, the whole world, knowing this heroic figure. Yeah, so my father at the time um, was the manager of the hot- of a hotel um, in the center of Kigali. It was a big hotel and um, also one of the locations that hosted many of the big events um, throughout the year. When the genocide began, he opened the doors for whomever could make it to the front door of the hotel and um, allowed them in. He sheltered everyone. He protected everyone, especially in the time of genocide when everyone outside the hotel was being butchered um, to death with machetes. He stood up and said, I will not join in the killings. This is not who we are. And instead um, used his charm, his his intelligence to to continue to 
tell the killers to leave one more day so that they, the people in the hotel could have could live one more day. And every day they would come back and try to get in or do something. And he would just fight back using his words, telling them, go and uh, the, giving them drinks, money, whichever he, whatever he could do at the time every day to, to keep them away one more day. And there were, in the end, he sheltered and protected the lives of 1,268 people of Tutsis and Hutus. Um, my father, as a Hutu man, safer at that time. Um, and so they were not, um, uh, as much as they tried to kill him as well several times, um, he was able to use the fact that he was a Hutu to also get the killers away uh, one more day. Um, so after after 75 days of continuing to protect people, calling everyone he had, he could in the, uh, around the world to, to come for help, to intervene so that people inside the hotel wouldn't be killed. Eventually, everyone was safely evacuated to the refugee camps outside of Kigali. Not a single person was killed. You know, I'm getting, I'm getting goosebumps hearing what you're telling me because essentially this is a, a Hutu man from the tribe that essentially is the one that is killing the other tribe, the Tutsis. And he is taking it upon himself to say, this is not who we are, like you just said. He's taking it upon himself to say, we can't do this to each other. And risks his life. He risks everything that he has to protect people he doesn't know. Uh, and I'm trying to imagine the character of such a man. Had had Paul Rosessa Bagina, your father, been involved in politics before? Was he an advocate for justice before? Or was he just a general manager for a hotel? Yes. So my father, since his a very young age, has always um, stood up for peace, for justice, and for the principles that that we all adhere to, should adhere to. Um, you know, he is mixed as well. He's technically Hutu and Tutsi. His his mother was a Tutsi, and his father was a Hutu. And even uh, when he was a child in uh, in the fifties, in the late fifties, the first time um, all of the the, the Tutsis were be- being um, persecuted and exiled, in his family, his father um, opened the doors and sheltered people who were fleeing this massacre back in the fifties. And so he saw his dad doing this. He saw his dad welcoming people inside his home to protect them. And so he grew up with the the, the belief that we are all one people and that we should all live together and and uh, and be good to one another. And uh, he demonstrated that before the genocide, even as a hotel manager at the Mille Collines, he would hire everyone, Hutus and Tutsis. He never made a difference um, on based on ethnicity. And so during the genocide, he also stood up. And after the genocide, he continued to speak out. So this is really at his core. Truly, he's a strong man and very um, his conscience is, is, uh, is very strong. And he's always said it, that uh, it is important to follow your conscience. Karine, I want to take us forward to the end of the genocide. Um, This horrible period in Rwanda finally comes to an end. And your father um, continues somehow to be an advocate for a better Rwanda and justice. What does this lead to? A new president, obviously, at this time uh, is in town. I would imagine that the new president would 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 make a hero out of this man Paul Rusesa Bagina what what happened after that what 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 became of the relationship between Paul Rusesa Bagina and the new president of Rwanda Paul Kagame 
Yeah, so um, when uh, the genocide ended, um, my father was becoming known by many people who had who he had sheltered and people who had heard about how he protected them in the hotel. Many people were writing testimonies, um, also writing books about what had happened. And um, around the world as well, the people he had called from the hotel, the Milkolin, calling for them to intervene and begging for their help so that people wouldn't die inside the hotel, um, also knew and, and, and commended him for his bravery. So unfortunately, this was a problem for the new president of Rwanda, who very much likes to be recognized as the only hero of Rwanda. And he was bothered that another man was being talked about and had this attention. And somehow he felt threatened by my father's popularity, even at the time. And so he attempted to assassinate him. Uh, that's immediately after the genocide. And so after the assassination attempt at our home in Kigali in Rwanda, we felt my father made the decision that we must flee and move outside of Rwanda for our safety and, and our security and, and move to Belgium instead. So um, that began, that was what led us to leave Rwanda. And so afterwards, my father, um, you know, we settled in Belgium. Um, we were still very little kids. And um, my dad really wanted us to have a normal life. You know, everyone in Rwanda was traumatized by what happened in 94, by, by the genocide. And he didn't want us to grow up as well with trauma. And so we began a new life. Um, he would take my brother to football or soccer practice, um, take my sister and daughter to dance classes. He began driving a taxi and he now was supporting a family of, of eight. And so um, he really just tried everything to be um, to make things life good for us and give us the most um, calm and, and, and good life that he could. And however, the Rwandan government uh, learned, continued to learn about who he was and, and, his, and his name continued to be, to be talked about. So they reached out to him actually and offered him positions. They offered him jobs. He they asked, you know, they said, you know, you can have anything. You can be an ambassador. You can be a minister. We'll give it to you. But my father said, no. He said, these people have not only attempted to kill me, they are responsible or have been accused of having committed crimes. And the Rwandan people truly need reconciliation. So he didn't want to work for such a regime. And so essentially, of course, then the movie Hotel Rwanda comes out. My father becomes vocal critic, uses the platform that Hotel Rwanda gave him. Because of the popularity of the film, he was able to travel the world and speak. And while speaking, then he talked about not only the history of the genocide, the lessons that we must all learn so that this never happens again, but also he talked about the new regime and what it was doing to the people, how it was hurting the Rwandan people and called on the international community not to close a blind eye to the atrocities being carried out by the Rwandan government. And that's why Kagame started targeting him and trying to assassinate him even where he was. Again, I am taken aback by your father's commitment. Porto Cesar Bagina is definitely a man whose conscience would not let him sell out the true story of justice and freedom that's needed for Rwanda and the people uh, of Rwanda. But something happened two years ago, and, and it's, a, it's a tragic story, because as we speak, Paul Rosesabagina, your father, somehow, somehow, is sitting in a maximum security prison in Rwanda. How did that happen? He had escaped. He was with his family. He was in, in, in a safe country. How does he end up today as we speak? in solitary confinement in, in Rwanda? 
As many people know now, the Rwandan government is um, practices transnational repression. This means going ac across international borders to intimidate critics, silence people, and, uh, and try to stop people from speaking out on what they are doing. So all these years I mentioned when my father was speaking around the world and giving, um, uh, trying to call on the international community not to close their eyes to, and uh, not to allow this regime to continue with impunity, the Rwandan government followed him. They followed him wherever he would go. They would send people to heckle at his conferences, schools, university. When he would speak at churches, they would send people to, to bother him. They attempted to assassinate him in Belgium. And they also have broken into our home um, as well as, uh, as trying to intimidate and silence him. But he was never intimidated and he continued to speak because he knew that he had a responsibility to do so. However, they in the end were successful in kidnapping him. They kidnapped him from San Antonio, Texas, um, via Dubai, and brought him to Rwanda. They used a priest um, to lure him from Texas. So they know that my father is a man of faith. They know that he's a very religious man. And so they sent um, an agent of the Rwandan government who called himself a priest to gain his trust for over two years and who eventually invited him to go speak to churches in Burundi. However, this was not a real priest. This was an agent of the government. Instead of going to Burundi, the plane took him to Rwanda. In the plane, he was drugged. And then upon arriving in Rwanda, he was tied up by the hands, the legs. His mouth was covered. His nose was covered. His eyes were covered. And he was taken, dragged and taken to a torture house where he remained there for four days, tortured for four days. At the end of those four days, because of the torture, he um, signed false confessions and, um, and then eventually was, uh, was charged of um, completely made up um, accusations um, of terrorism. As you know, many political, many dictators like to silence people with uh, such charges. This is a, a, such an elaborate scheme. It's shocking uh, to hear this. And yet this is what governments are doing now, you know, transnational repression. So Paul Recessa Bagina is lured from San Antonio, Texas in the USA by a priest who has gained his trust over the two years, uh, invites him to come and speak to churches in Burundi. And in Dubai, they arrange for uh, a flight to take off from uh, Dubai uh, to take him supposedly to Burundi, Paul Rusesabagina wakes up in Rwanda. I mean, that is that is just, I, I can't even describe how scary that is. I cannot describe how, how evil a plan that is. And I think more than anything else, it's difficult to understand what must have been going through the mind of your father, Paul, uh, during this time. I know that you then immediately quit your job and you have taken it upon yourself to call the entire world to attention concerning your father's incarceration, concerning the evil that has happened to him. Tell me a little bit about what that journey has meant for you. What is the cost? What dangers have you encountered as you have become the voice, you and your sister, you know, have become the voice of freeing your father. What has that meant for you? What have you encountered? What have you seen? Our entire family is 100% working on this um, to try to save our dad's, our father's life. 
my mother is holding our family together, like the pillar that she is. And we continue to remind ourselves every single day, not only that we are grateful that we know he's alive, um, but also of our responsibility to not only speak out like he did, his entire life for the people who were being abused and silenced by this regime. My father has been silenced for 650 days now. He has been silenced by the Rwandan government. And so we are being his voice and we are telling the world what is happening to him and calling on the international community, not again to close a blind eye to this government and what they're doing to him, but also to other political prisoners and other people who are silencing in the Great Lakes region of Africa. Uh, for for the past 650 days, we have been knocking on every possible doors, calling every government official that we can get in touch with, every news agency to speak to 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 speak about his case and cover it. At the same time, you know, his rights are being violated in Rwanda. Not only was he kidnapped and tortured, but he was also held in solitary confinements for over six months. He was um, he is being denied the rights to his to meet with his attorneys. He's not even being medicated properly and all of these things. And then he's also being denied the right to speak to anyone in the prison. Really, they're social. They're completely isolating him and psychologically torturing him. This is all meant to break him. And we have to continue to be strong in the same way that he continued to be brave and strong for all the people he spoke on for all his life. Um, unfortunately, in doing so, we also have been now targets of this regime um, where they are trying to intimidate us into silence. Tell me about being being targeted. Um, recently, you made um, a discovery concerning what the Rwandan government has been doing to follow you and to listen to you and to figure out where you are and what you're doing. What has that discovery been? Yes, we learned that um, the Rwandan government had infected my phone with the Pegasus software. Amnesty International Security Lab conducted forensics analysis on my phone and learned that the Rwandan government has continuously um, been infecting my phone, following my every move, listening to my conversations as I try to advocate for my father. Um, they are. They, we also learned that they are physically following me um, in places that I go and trying to intimidate me into silence. They want me to stop speaking on, out for my dad in the same way that they were doing that to him all his life. But like I said, he, he was never intimidated and we will not be intimidated either. Um, it is so important to continue to speak out because this is how they win. They scare people into silence. And for us, silence means our father dies. And so we cannot be silent. Pegasus software, this, this for those of you that don't know what this is, um, what Karine is talking about here is a surveillance piece of software that authoritarian regimes are now having access to, to follow and to listen to those uh, of their citizens that they do not want to speak out anymore. Karine, is it possible that even this podcast that we are doing uh, before it is released, is being fully listened to by the Rwandan government. It is entirely possible. So we learned as well recently that my other phone also has traces of Pegasus. So it wasn't only one phone that was infected. That 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 is that has been um, identified um, with traces. And so so the thing is, we know that they're following. That they don't like it when people speak out. They don't like human rights activists, advocates. And again, we are speaking on on the human rights of my father. And this is how we do. 
And the other unfortunate things is that um, this cost, this software costs a lot of money. And Rwanda is one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, I think the 21st poorest country in the world, according to the IMF, and one of the poorest countries even on the African continent. Yet they're spending millions to follow me as I just speak. <laughs> All I'm doing is speaking. And and a powerful voice you have, Karine. Let me let me be one of those that affirms that that your voice, your the voice of your siblings, is being heard the world over as you scream free Paul Rusesa Bagina and and stop the the injustice uh, against him. Tell us a little bit about some of the results of your speaking out, some of the engagements that you have done with governments and with agencies uh, that are pro-democracy and pro-freedom, what have some of the results been? Yeah, so first, I'm very uh, grateful um, that many organizations around the world are now paying attention to what is happening in Rwanda and what the Rwandan government is carrying out. For instance, Freedom House just released a report, a detailed report on how Rwanda does transnational repression. And of course, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and all of the other big human rights organizations are also calling this out. So people around the world know, so does the United Nations and many others. So many, many people already know of the reality of this regime. However, because of the Rwandan government propaganda machine and their uh, misinformation, their ability to try to, 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 to control the narrative and to make lies stick around the world, they have uh, begun a smear campaign against my father and against our family. And so it is so important for us to continue to speak and show, put light on what is happening to our dad and what is happening to us as we try to advocate for him. That means showing what was happening in the trial as my father, during the trial of my father, um, thankfully at the, the American Bar Association the, and, the, and the Clooney Foundation for Justice monitored um, the entirety of the trial that served as independent monitor and also um, published that this was a completely political trial and that my father is a political prisoner, essentially. And so these are the kind of things that we have been showing the world. We've been telling all governments that we're speaking to, all organizations, all individuals, what these these reports say and what we've seen and what has happened to our father and what's happened to us. And the United States government um, just last month formally designated my father as a wrongful detainee, which means that for the U.S. government, my father should not be in prison. He should be released. And um, they are now working to secure his release, along with the European Parliament that adopted resolutions calling for his release, condemning what's happened to him and what is what is what the Rwandan uh, government is doing to other people, other political prisoners, journalists, critics, and so on. Um, the U.K. in Westminster Hall, uh, members of parliament proposed Magnitsky sanctions on uh, Rwandan government officials responsible for kidnapping my father. And just recently, the Hollywood stars have also joined in our campaign uh, with a T-shirt campaign. Don Cheadle, who portrayed my father in Hotel Rwanda, uh, helped us launch the campaign along with many other celebrities, basketball players, uh, musicians, and stars around the world to help us bring awareness on this. And um, and so that not only there can be action taken, but also so that no one closes a blind eye to it and that people feel and see the responsibility and the role that they have to play in ending this injustice. Karine Kanimba, the daughter of the Rwandan genocide hero, Paul Rusesa Bagina. I want to ask you one final question as we come to the end of our conversation here today. Karine, first of all, 
do you do you think your father will be will be freed? Is there is there any hope at all? Tell me. Absolutely. My father will come home. I know it. And I will continue to fight every single day for him to come home. Um, during the genocide, my father never lost hope. He continued to speak. He continued to, to fight, to, to stand up for the people who were um, being threatened inside the Milkolin. And after 75 days, no one was killed. And so we will continue with the same hope and the same um, perseverance that he had in 1994 until he comes home. And we will continue to also speak out for all other political prisoners who are being unjustly treated under this regime. You know, as you were speaking and you said, my father will come home. Your voice accentuated. There's a there's literally rays of sunshine coming out of out of your voice. My father will come home, and I think I think that's going to be that's going to be the title of this podcast. My father will come home, and um, what a day it's going to be! I received my own T-shirt uh, just a few days ago that I'm putting on, and I'm going to be. Uh, uploading my picture um, on social media as well to add my voice to yours, Karine. You're a hero. You're inspirational. I want to ask, and I, this may not be on your radar, but if you were to tell people who live in the free world anything about your struggle, what, what would it be? Uh, you know, What would you tell them about their own struggle uh, for freedom and democracy? I would say um, that we all first have a responsibility to stand up for justice, to stand up for human rights, and to stand up for the principles that we all cherish, the ones that we want our world to live by. And we must continue to speak out, even when we're challenged by di dictatorial regimes like the Rwandan government. We must not be intimidated by their attempts at silencing us. We must continue to stand up, continue to speak, and believe that there is enough people around the world who will join in and ensure that our, our wishes of a better world are met. So I would just encourage everyone not to be intimidated, intimidated, not to be frightened and to stand up and speak. No better person to, to give the world that kind of message than, than yourself. Um, Karine, thank you again so much for taking the time to be with us here today on the front lines of freedom. You represent the front lines of freedom with everything that you are doing. At 11 months old, a man made sure that you had freedom, that you had life. And many years later, you are making sure that he also gets the freedom that he deserves. And I think that's, that, that in a nutshell represents the kind of world that we live in, that we all get chances to fight for people that are not in a position to be as free as we are or are not in a position to fight for themselves. And it is up to us to dispense of our own strength, our own safety, to sacrifice our own resources, to make sure that those people come home, wherever home is, people want to come, come back home. Thank you so much again, Karine and, uh, we, we will celebrate with you when your father comes home. Thank you for joining us once again here on the front lines of freedom. As we have spoken to Karine Kanimba, and I hope that you will join us again. Thank you very much, Evan. 
Paul Rosesa Bagina didn't have to save people in that hotel back in 1994. He didn't have to put his life in danger by negotiating with murderers and offering them drinks just to delay the impending murder of people he didn't even know in a hotel that wasn't even his. But he did. And because he did, there are people today who have lived for 25 years more than they would have had he not. Every day, we have the chance to stand up for people and causes that have nothing to do with us directly. And our choice to do nothing because it's none of our business gives a little more room for the injustice to grow. Kareen Kanimba is not just returning a favor to Paul for saving her life and for adopting her. She's doing what she has to do. Here's my question as we end today. What do you have to do? Thanks for listening today. Join me again on our next episode. Bye-bye.